WAGP.net. The Beaufort Women's Center is holding their annual Walk for Life fundraiser on location Saturday, November 19th, with registration at 8.30 and the walk at 9. Can't walk that day? No problem. Just commit to a two-mile walk somewhere that week. You don't have to collect any money, just pledges from sponsors. The center is dedicated to helping those facing unplanned pregnancies by offering life-affirming options. Take a stand with the body of Christ. For more information and a pledge form, call 525-0300 or sign up online at BufordWomenCenter.com. Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Good morning and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live. A live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free. 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. This is an opportunity for us to dialogue together over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. If you have a particular question as you've been studying God's word or an issue you're facing in your personal life that you would like help with, well, if we can be of aid by God's grace, we will do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone. The local number, again, is 525-1859. We have people who listen through the Internet or those outside of the state who would like a toll-free number, and that number is 877 877- WAGP 980. We have a lot of people who email us directly as well into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable with it, we always like it when people go live on the air. Good morning, Rick. As always, it's good to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and I see the lines are lighting up now. We'll give them a second to see if they're going to bravely step up to the uh, telephone and go on the air, or whether they want to dictate dictate their question. Uh, it looks like they do want to go live. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Ah, good morning, Dr. Rory. Hey, um, I uh, had a couple visitors of a Jehovah Witnesses this weekend, and I, I led them through a lot of the scripture and had a, had a great uh, argument with them, and it was wonderful. turned out great. But it came up some point to this that I wanted to bring a theological question with you because uh, they they said they believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but yet I know that they actually think he's Michael from uh, some of the stuff I read on it. Uh, either they were unaware of what they were talking about or unaware that they had secret knowledge of who Jesus Christ was, but they actually held faith that Jesus Christ could save God, save them. But the question I have to ask is... Um, if somebody doesn't know who God is, but yet falls upon Jesus Christ to save them, are they in fact saved um, without knowing who God is? And that is Jesus Christ. Well, it, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, there there are many many errors, obviously, uh, that is uh, wrapped up together under you know the title of Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Terms are totally redefined. 
when they speak of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, they would by that mean, just as you are a tripartite individual made up of body, soul, and spirit, just as there's an immaterial portion to you that you have um, a human spirit, they would say, well, in the same way, God has a spirit. But they don't acknowledge or affirm the historical biblical position that there is one God who's manifests himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and uh, God the Son are equal persons, distinct persons, but inseparable persons within the Godhead. They deny that. And with that, of course, they deny the deity of Christ. And so when you're dealing with Jehovah's Witness, you know, like a lot of sects and cults, they will use the same terminology, but they mean entirely different things by it. Even in liberal Protestantism, you'll you'll find the same thing. Uh, you'll find uh, there's a liberal Protestant church that I think of in our county where the pastor says, well, Jesus rose from the dead. And by that, he means he spiritually arose from the dead, not that he literally physically arose from the dead. But if they're honest, you know, some of them might lose their jobs, um, or they speak of the return of Christ from heaven. And by the second coming of Christ, they talk about, well, the society becoming more Christianized and Jesus rising up in our hearts, but not that he's actually coming to judge the living and the dead. And so when Jehovah's Witness use the term son of God, they're not using it in the same way that the uh, Bible uses it. I know sometimes people hear the term son of God and they think, well, that's a depreciating term that he is less than uh, equal with God. But actually, it's a term of equality. When Jesus is directly asked the question by Caiaphas, the high priest, before his crucifixion, are you the son of God? He said, I am. And what did Caiaphas do? He tore his robes and said, you've blasphemed. He, he, he said that you've blasphemed because you've made yourself out equal to the Father. So the term son of God was a term of equality when the sons of thunder, as they're called by Jesus, what does he mean by that? Well, they're, they're thunderous men. And so when the Bible uses the term son of God, it means he's God the son. And so to sometimes get through the fuzziness when they show up at your door, and I had some Jehovah's Witness show up at my door just in the last couple of months, and I asked uh, them a simple question. I said, now you're using the same terminology, but we don't mean the same thing. I said, let me ask you one question. Do you worship Jesus Christ? And both of them said, no. Then I said, then you don't really acknowledge the same thing about Jesus Christ that the Bible does and that I believe. Because in the Bible, people worship Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is in his resurrected body, two women fall at his feet, and the Bible says they worship him. Unlike Peter or Paul, when men try to worship them, uh, Jesus doesn't tear his robe and say, don't do that, I'm only a man. No, he receives their worship. And in Revelation 5, all of heaven is worshiping the Lamb of God, the Son of God who's on the throne. The Bible says you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only. To worship anyone other than God is sheer blasphemy. It's idolatry. It's wickedness of the worst type. And yet, in the Bible, people worship Jesus. So you can get through the fuzz by just saying, hey, do you worship Jesus Christ? And an honest Jehovah's Witness will always tell you, no, we, we do not. And then you can say, then you don't mean the same thing by the term Son of God that 
that we mean. They deny salvation by grace, that we're saved by the grace of God alone. Um, Every major doctrine of historical Christianity is denied by Jehovah's Witness. For a long time, they used the translation of the Bible before they came out with the New World Translation, which was actually a very good translation. It was called the uh, the American Standard Version, the ASV, uh, which later became the New American Standard. Um, They liked it because uh, Yehovah, uh, was or, or Yahweh, depending on how you point the Hebrew, was translated throughout the Old Testament, Jehovah. And so they loved it. They said, we see, we, we've got a Bible that where, it, where it says God is Jehovah. But the problem with it is uh, they ended up having some Jehovah's Witnesses getting converted through it. So they created their own translation where a group of four men uh, systematically went through and rewrote the text of Scripture that dealt with the deity of Christ. There's um, a little pamphlet that if you'd like uh, to come by Community Bible Church, if you're local, if you're not, we'll be happy to mail it to you. It's called Spirit of Truth, Spirit of Error. And it was put out first, I think, in 1960 by Moody Bible Institute. It's been revised and updated a few times. But we give it to people often who come by who say, well, I've got a question about such and such a group. And has has uh, seven major cults, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, the Unity Church, and so on. And, um, and on one column, it says what the Bible teaches and then what they teach. What the Bible teaches about God, sin, salvation, the Trinity, so on, and and it gives actual verses, and then what these groups teach, and it quotes from their documents. It's not what people say about them, but what they say about themselves. So it's a good little summary brochure that uh, when you fold it all out, it's about three feet wide and uh, a foot deep, and it's a great little brochure. So if that would be of help, feel free to call us, and we'll be happy to mail it to you. You can pick it up here. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, indeed. Uh, we did have a dictated question. This person would ask you to please explain repentance. He says, I've read all I can about it, but I'm still very confused. I believe if you ask three different people, you'll get three different answers. Well, that's true sometimes. Um can can uh, repentance is uh, made sometimes into a work. It becomes very confusing, and uh, there is a noun uh, form of the word in the Greek New Testament, and there's the verb form. Metanoia is the noun. Metaneo is the verb. And in either case, noun or verb, it just means to change your mind or to have had a change of mind. Uh, when you repent, you change your mind. Uh, that's all it means. Uh, when Peter is asked directly, what must I do to be saved? Um, he says in Acts 2, repent. Uh, he's been preaching a sermon to his Jewish brethren, documenting that the one they crucified was their own Messiah. And he demonstrated what the prophets said he would do. Jesus fulfilled that. And they're cut quick. They're pierced to the heart. And they say, brethren, what must we do? And in one word, Peter says, repent. Change your mind. You said he was only a man. Change your mind and throne him as Lord. Uh, believe on him as your Savior. Paul is asked the same question as, as it's recorded in Acts 16 by a Philippian jailer who says, uh, sir, speaking to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And in one word, he says, believe. Uh, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Belief and repentance are the flip side of the same coin. When you've believed, you've repented. When you've truly repented, you've believed. Let me say what repentance is, is not. Sometimes that can be helpful. Repentance is not simply confessing that you are a sinner. 
uh, Pharaoh confessed that he was a sinner. He says, I've sinned against the Lord indeed. Uh, but the Bible goes on to say that he hardened his heart. And because he hardened his heart, God in turn hardened his heart. So it's not simply confession of sin. Uh, for that matter, repentance is not simply crying. Um, some people have cried over their sin. Uh, Esau cried. He wept over the consequences of his sin, but not over the sin itself. And very often that's what people do. They're, they're not really uh, a broken and contrite heart that the Lord doesn't despise, but they're people who are just really upset with themselves or upset with the consequences that they now need to live with because of the fact that they've committed some particular sin. Now, repentance is a change of mind. And so when you come to Jesus Christ, you come to him for the forgiveness of sins. Um, You know, if someone wants Jesus just for what he can do for them in terms of an escape from hell, but they don't really want forgiveness of sin, uh, then they don't have a need for a savior. You know, sometimes I'll meet people who will come to our church. In fact, almost every week there is some visitor's card where you've got two different last names on the same card and somebody's living together. And I'll sometimes share the gospel with them and and uh, they'll seemingly make a decision. I'll say, well, listen, if you truly made a decision tonight and it's real, then uh, you need to break off this relationship. To live uh, in a sexual relationship outside of marriage is sin. And I said, if you want me to baptize you, if indeed your relationship with Christ is, is real, then let me know when it's broken up. And if again, if it's genuine conversion, if, if they're willing to call sin, sin, then they're willing to call adultery or fornication wrong, and they want forgiveness. And if they really believe it's sin, then they want God to change it. So true belief results in a change of mind and attitude towards God, towards self, towards sin. Um, sometimes people get upset if you don't use the word repent in your gospel presentation. There's actually only one book in the New Testament that expressly is written with an evangelistic purpose in mind, and it's John's gospel. Uh, It's the only book in all the New Testament that is stated as having that as its specific goal or purpose. And when he comes to the end of the book, he says, many other signs or miracles, therefore Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these have been written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this book. Does the word repent ever once appear in this book who has a specific evangelistic purpose? No, not once doesn't appear anywhere in the Gospel of John. Now, it's found in all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not found in John's Gospel. Why? Because when you truly believe on Jesus Christ, you've repented. And repentance is implied and implicit in true belief. So anyway, I hope that helps and we'll get you thinking and started. Let's go to our next caller who's been waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Dr. Brogy. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for calling today. No problem. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a two-pack question here. Um, I recently heard a sermon by a pastor who was speaking out of Mark 2, and he was saying that the way you live your life and your relationship with Jesus can affect other people's salvation, specifically people close to you, talking about the four friends who went to Jesus, bringing their paralytic friend, Jesus saying your faith is great. And I guess my question is, does my sin affect people close to me? And 
affect my prayer life and God pursuing them and the way I live my life. And the second part of the question is, does God work in the lives of unbelievers? For example, if something tragic happened to them, is that God working in them or is that kind of just sin in their lives? It's a, it's a good question. Let me, let me respond to the first one. Uh, does my own personal sin affect my prayer life or other people? And I would say the answer to both of those are indeed yes. Yes, in this respect. The Bible says in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. You know, very often we take verses like that or Isaiah where it says your, your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. And we dump it and apply it just on unsaved people. But in their original context, both those verses are written not to lost, but to those who are saved. Uh, That in terms of the prayer of a saved person, not if I sin, but if I regard sin, if I cling to sin, if I hold on to iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. Why? Because God says, in essence, get your own heart right before you come and bring this burden to me. God wants us to come with him with a clean heart. And so, yes, my prayer life is affected. And that's why Peter can say in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, he's speaking of marriages there. And he says, um, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Um, he's just described in 1 through 6 of chapter 3 of what wives should do and how they should uh, deal in their relationships with their husbands. And so now he turns the tables and he says, well, likewise, here is husbands, what I want you to do. You live with your wives in an understanding way as with her weaker vessels since she's a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So that your, and that your there is plural going back to husbands and wives may not be hindered, kind of a summary statement. So, and then he goes on to sum it all up. Let everybody be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and so forth. So our prayer life is hindered when there's unconfessed, unrepented sin in our life. And God takes that seriously. So, you know, you may be burdened to pray for somebody, and God wants to respond to your prayers. You may be burdened to pray for your own needs, and God cares about those needs. Uh, but very often, God won't respond until we first deal with first things first. So that doesn't mean that God is uh, hindered or less sovereign or that his hands are tied concerning people that you're concerned about. But on the other hand, um, you know, God's not going to use you in their lives. And God needs people who are watchmen who will stand in the gap, if we can use the metaphor from uh, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, God wants people who are intercessors for other individuals. And you might be more burdened and more caring about that lost person than than anyone else in this world would be. So you want to be that instrument that God can use and whose prayer that God can respond to. Um, The second half of his question. Um, go ahead, Rick. Okay. He wanted to know, does God work in the lives of unbelievers, for example, allowing bad things to happen to them in order to bring them to faith, or is that just life in a fallen world? Well, indeed, there's different kinds of suffering in the world. There's common suffering, there's carnal suffering, and there's Christian suffering. Common suffering is the kind of suffering we know because we live in a fallen world. So it was actually an expression of God's grace that when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't leave them in a 
in a world that was like the Garden of Eden. He put man on notice that now he'd have to deal with thorns and thistles and work through the sweat of his brow and that pregnancies would not be painless, that a woman would suffer anguish and childbirth and so forth. Uh, that was an expression of God's grace, letting us know that everything's not okay, uh, that there's a problem in this sin-sick world. There's carnal suffering. A lot of problems people have, they brought on themselves. Uh, they break God's laws, and then they're broken by them. Uh, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And then there's Christian suffering, and that's the kind of suffering we experience because we're living for Jesus and we're persecuted. Now, does God sometimes use hardship in our lives to get our attention? Certainly. Um, Many times when we're on our back and the only way we can look is up, God has our attention. So God's heart is indeed to bring people to himself. He works in the hearts of unpleasant believers, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, uh, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, God will show people that they're sinners and that they're sinner. Their sin causes them to fall short of God's righteousness and that falling short of the righteousness which they need to have a relationship with God invites the judgment of God. So sometimes God uses hardship for many people um, who visit the church these days Uh, It's because of a crisis in their life. Uh, They've tried all the uh, entertainments of the world, and they haven't worked for them. And maybe their home is in disarray, or their kids are rebellious. And so they come to church, and God is using hardship to get their attention. And that's a good thing. But by no means is God limited to hardship. In fact, the, the flip side of the equation is spoken of in the book of Romans, uh, when when God deals in Romans 2 with certain blessings that he had laid upon people, he makes this statement. It's really a powerful statement. I think sometimes we, we, we ignore this side of the equation, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to you to repentance? So sometimes it's all of the blessings of God that should lead a person to repentance as well. So God can use both sides of it. So I hope that helps. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Definitely shed light on that. Thank you. All right. Great question. All right. Very good. 525-1859, toll free 877-WAGP980, or email us as this person from Texas has at tdl at net. He writes, I recently found out that someone I've known since childhood had developed an addiction to pain pills And currently, he goes to a methadone clinic every day. He's been around church since being a youth and considered himself to be a Christian. When I asked him the diagnostic questions about how sure you are you'd go to heaven tonight if this was your last night on earth, what would you say if God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? He said 100% sure, but gave an unclear answer that seemed to involve works. I explained the gospel that Jesus is the sinless son of God and took the punishment uh, we deserved on the cross to pay for our sin in full, died and rose from the dead so we could place our trust in him as our Savior. And I read and explained John chapter 3, emphasizing 316 and the second birth. He said he uh, wanted to accept Jesus as Savior by faith in the gospel and uh, be sure that he went to heaven, and we prayed the sinner's prayer together. We continued our conversation, and I read with him and explained the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it talks about not continuing in sin and that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Since I'm unfamiliar with pain pill addiction, I was not sure if I should tell them to immediately stop going to the methadone clinic. What advice would you give to a new believer to overcome his pain pill addiction who is going to a methadone clinic? This man lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and would like to know if you have any churches you can recommend. 
Well, there's a lot of things going on there. You know, um, one, he, he gave the answer, I'm 100% sure, and you'd like to hear that from an individual, but then he gave an answer that was sounded like faith and works, kind of a, a mixed bag. And so he didn't give the right answer. And there's a lot of people like that. I would say probably 30% of unsaved people tell me they're 100% sure. Uh, they're just 100% wrong. They have a false assurance. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. Can you imagine that, thinking that you're going to go to heaven and then die and discover that you're not truly, genuinely born again, and you hear from the Lord, I never knew you, depart from me. Not I once knew you, but I, I never knew you. So you walk them through the plan of salvation, and hopefully it was genuine, and they did indeed place their faith in Jesus as Lord. Now, in terms of dealing with this uh, sinful addiction, uh, let me say that occasionally, occasionally, and I would underscore that, I will meet someone who met Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they'll say, I never wanted another drop of alcohol, never wanted to take another pill for the rest of my life, never wanted to snort cocaine again. Well, that can happen, but that is very, very rare. I would not say that is a typical testimony, because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the sin nature is not immediately dissolved. If someone was an adulterer before they were saved, it doesn't mean that they could never commit adultery again. They could easily be tempted in that. If someone was a drunkard before they were saved, it doesn't mean they couldn't be tempted to have another drink. They could easily be tempted. Now, very often, when I'm dealing with people from drug and alcohol backgrounds and they meet Christ as their Savior, we encourage them to come to the new Christians class. We call it here the Discovery class. It's a 35-week course that's on a rotating curriculum, so someone can jump in any week they want. Uh, This is week 18, so they could go 18 to 35 and 1 to 17 and get the whole course. But it's set up to walk them through the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Billy Graham said some years ago that, in his opinion, 90 to 95 percent of the genuine Christians in America are still babes in Christ. And I see that a lot as a pastor, sometimes because they've never been taught and have ever been grounded in the fundamentals. So sometimes we'll take people from drug-alcohol backgrounds, they'll go through that course, Everything changes. Why? Because they begin to learn the principles of how to deal with temptation. Uh, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its sinful desires. That's a principle that we teach from Romans thirteen fourteen. Make no provisions for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provisions for the flesh. So what does that mean for the meth user? Well, it might mean he can never call certain people again um, to hang out with them. Because he knows that he's not to be deceived, that bad company corrupts good morals. There may be some places physically he can never go visit. Maybe not for years. Maybe never again. Maybe there's some friends that he could never call again, and he's just going to have to trust God to use somebody else to win them to Jesus. Because he's not strong enough to be able to deal with that temptation. So many people, I'm trying to say, as they walk through the discovery class material, they learn the biblical principles on how to find their strength in the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I have to learn, well, how does he strengthen me where he can change my behavior? What's the role of temptation, the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of prayer, the role of the Word of God? And those are all separate weeks that we deal with in that course. Um, There are other people, however— that need a little bit more accountability. 
And so we've had people from drug alcohol backgrounds that we've sent to the Elam home or to uh, Hebron home. Elam home was started by Jerry Falwell. Uh, Hebron home is a home for men uh, from alcohol drug backgrounds. There's one for women called Grace Home up in Santee, South Carolina. Elam is up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Hebron is up in um, in uh, in Appalachia, in, in, in Boone, North Carolina, right near ASU. So here's the point is that sometimes people need some 24-7 accountability where they're away from all their friends, all their drugs, and things have an opportunity to settle, and they begin to, over the course of 90 days, which is what most of these programs are, they learn God's principles and how to be free. Uh, a lot of the secular courses are just that, secular. Um, some of them are built on biblical principles, but not all of them. And so ideally, if you're in a ministry or a program where you're learning biblical principles on how to stay clean and free, it's even better. The secular programs where you go, they're typically anywhere from 250 to $400 a day. Um, they have about a 25% success rate, but they at best teach people how to white knuckle it. Uh, how do you using human willpower to overcome bad habits? They're not really free on the inside. A biblical uh, course of instruction will teach you God's principles on how to stay free. And it makes all the difference in the world. Most of those have about an 80% success rate. And uh, it works for someone who's had this second birth. So um, he may need some of that accountability, and ideally you want to get him in a good, solid local church. Hey, there's a brother we play here, uh, Jack Graham, Prestonwood Baptist Church uh, there in the Dallas area. That's a great church, one that just comes to mind uh, that you might want to consider sending him to. Great question. Let's go to our next one, Rick. All right, our next caller dictated. They uh, say that in Matthew 19.9, Jesus Christ seems to be saying, that divorce and marrying another person is allowed on the grounds of fornication. How does Pastor Brogy answer people who give this argument for divorce? Well, uh, Jesus addresses the subject of divorce in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no mention of divorce in John's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is unique because it alone carries the exception clause in Matthew 5, where he addresses it in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 19, when he's uh, confronted by some Pharisees who come and they test him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And of course, the point of debate was over a verse that was found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because of he has found some indecency in her. The question becomes, well, what is the indecency that uh, was found? Uh, and there was two schools of thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel said the indecency could be any indecency, any reason at all. You no longer like the way your wife looked. You no longer like the way she cooked. Anything. You think of it, you don't like it, you can bail out. The school of Shammai took Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, and they said, well, this was some sexual unfaithfulness. So when they come testing him, they're basically asking him, whose side are you on? And so Jesus said, well, haven't you read 
uh, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he takes them all the way back to the beginning and he reminds them what Moses wrote in Genesis, that God's original uh, plan for marriage is a man leaves, he cleaves, and he becomes one. And so when you become one, a new family is started. What God has made one, no man is to separate. Well, their question was, well, why then did Moses give a command to give a, a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And uh, Jesus said, well, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted. He didn't command it. As they said, Jesus changed their wording. He permitted it. And it was only because of hardness of heart. And so there were some things that God allowed, but it was never his original intention. God allowed polygamy under the old covenant, but it was never his ideal. David to have multiple wives. Um, Jacob to have more than one wife, Solomon to have a lot of wives, and certainly a lot of them were political alliances only. But still, that was never God's plan. But God allowed some things under the Old Covenant. And under the New Covenant, such people wouldn't even be considered believers. If somebody today had multiple wives, you wouldn't say, well, he's just not a very good believer. You'd say he's a non-Christian. He, he, he's a polygamist. He's a bigamist, whatever it might be, two or more. Um, so you wouldn't consider him uh, a, a true believer. But you see, the promise of the new covenant changes all of that, where the expectation that God has now is higher. And this is what God had prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, uh, declares the Lord. Because, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That's the promise of the new covenant. God's going to put the Holy Spirit inside of us and do an inside work. But it's not possible until the sin is actually forgiven. And again, the, the prophet Ezekiel, he echoes the new covenant once again. He says it in these words in Ezekiel 36. Moreover, I will give, a new, give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So God describes this new relationship because of what Messiah has done on the cross by provided forgiveness of sin, where he can take a heart of stone and make it pliable and flexible. So Moses permitted it because of the hardness of heart, but it was never God's original intention. So he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication, the King James says, uh, immorality is how the NAS renders it. The Greek text says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits adultery or moikeia. Two different Greek words. Now, the way most Christians read this today is in this way. They say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. But that's not what the text says. No English text even reads that way. Uh, the Greek text says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia 
or a fornication and marries another commits moikeia. What did he have in mind? I believe the exception clause is found only in Matthew's gospel because only in Matthew's gospel do you have Jews who practice betrothal. Matthew's gospel is the Jewish gospel. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And so and no one, by the way, debates that. He, he quotes the Old Testament more than any gospel writer. He doesn't give explanations like Mark or Luke would say, oh, when they wash their hands, this is what it means, because he's writing to Gentiles. And because Jews practice betrothal, he gives an exception clause. When you were betrothed, it was different from engagement. And it's a little bit weak to render an engagement, because in our culture, engagements are easily broken. There's no formality where you have to go and get some written certificate to break an engagement. He or she or both of them says it's over, and it's over. But it's not that way with betrothal. When you were betrothed, you were considered husband and wife. And so there are four examples in the Old Testament where people are called husband and wife, and they're only betrothed. In the New Testament, there's one. Joseph is called the husband of Mary, but he's only betrothed to her. And so if during betrothal, before the relationship had been consummated, one of the partners had been unfaithful, then the relationship could be broken. And I believe that's what the exception clause is is really indicating. And I think that's how the disciples understood it. Well, they said, unlike the school of Hillel or Shammai, if the relationship to the man and his wife is like this, maybe it's better never to get married. <laughs> they knew Jesus was carrying it to a higher, higher standard. So uh, I think we've lowered the standard in our day. The idea that it referred to adultery after marriage was something that a guy by the name of Erasmus in the 1500s introduced. Erasmus was a, a man who debated Martin Luther over justification by grace alone through faith alone. He said he didn't believe it. Um, he did produce a copy of the Greek New Testament, but he himself um, was one who denied salvation by grace through faith. And he came up with the idea that this is what uh, the exception clause referred to adultery after marriage. I don't think so. I don't think there are exceptions. So Jesus carried it to a high, high standard. That doesn't mean there's not forgiveness. There is forgiveness. But God wants us to understand the permanency of marriage. It's a permanent thing only to be broken by death. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. Or email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this person. They write, we know that Jesus' mission on earth was not to heal the sick or raise the dead. He came to pay our sin debt and to give us a pattern for how we should live our lives. In John 5.19, Jesus says, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. And in John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. Question, did Jesus retain his power when he became a man, or was his power obtained through perfect faith? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Um, Why is it that the Son can do nothing of himself? Because the Son of God has become the Son of Man. And in becoming the Son of Man, when the Bible speaks of the fact that Jesus emptied himself in Philippians... It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of any of his divine attributes. Jesus was as much God in a human body as he was in eternity past before he was incarnated. Uh, Jesus never laid aside his deity, but he did lay aside the uh, free 
exercise of those divine attributes. And so he only does what he sees the Father doing. Um, He has to, in essence, learn obedience in his humanity, as the writer of the Hebrews underscores. But even this passage speaks of the fact that he is indeed equal in nature and equal in power. Um, he, He says, look, I do what the Father does. Who can do what the Father does unless they're God? Only, only truly the Lord God himself can. And so Jesus, all the way through here, he affirms not only is he equal in power, he's equal in nature, he's equal in authority. Uh, really, 18 to uh, 30 is a great uh, argument for the deity of the Lord Jesus. So he chose to live in dependence upon the Father. And he made that choice um, to do that. Uh, again, he never ceased becoming God, but he chose to live in dependence upon the Father as the Son of Man. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. This question was actually called in a couple of weeks ago, and I apologize for not uh, remembering it. But uh, this person uh, left a message. They said he, he was actually shocked. He had a discussion with some friends, and their answers, who these friends are born-again Christians, uh, their answers upset him greatly, but he wanted to throw it out to you and see what your answer would be. In a desire to best care for your family, as a Christian husband, if you have an opportunity for a job at McDonald's making $5 an hour or driving a beer truck at $20 an hour, what ought you do? Well, work at McDonald's at $5 an hour. Um, Really. Uh, Woe to you who gives his neighbor to drink so as to make him drunk. How, How can you work for the alcohol industry and get behind it and get excited about it. Uh, You know, I mean, you can sell cocaine, too, and make money and feed your family that way. Is it right? Of course not. Uh, You can um, go and gamble and maybe make money for your family. Is that right? Of course not. So there's a lot of, uh, you could prostitute your body and make money and say, well, i got to feed my kids. Is that right? Of course not. So you would agree that in some instances, obviously, it would be wrong for a Christian to look to uh, a sinful means in which to accomplish a godly responsibility, namely take care of your family. And so I would put alcohol, the sale and distribution of alcohol in that same category. And so it really becomes an issue. Well, what does the Bible say about alcohol? And I have some messages on that that um, I would encourage you to possibly listen to. Because it's becoming more and more popular today in vogue for Christians to drink. Uh, That's just where our culture has been. Uh, You're cool. You're an enlightened Christian if you can have a glass of wine with your pizza. You know, you're really enlightened. And and the rest of the body of Christ who argues for abstinence, they're just legalistic or stupid little Christians. That's the mindset. And I would say... No, they're the ones who are grossly uninformed because, number one, the Bible forbids drunkenness. Number two, the Bible forbids the use of strong drink. Unless that strong drink is being used to purify water or to put on a wound as a medicine, the Bible condemns the use of strong drink. What's strong drink? Are we talking about whiskey, rum, vodka that came centuries after the Bible was completed? No. Uh, You have to go back to the historical, cultural context. And strong drink was just naturally fermented wine or beer. 
That's all they had. God said, don't use it. You know, I, and by the way, um, I, I, my son and I were in a discussion because he's in, been in Washington, D.C. for a long time where the Christian community freely uses alcohol. In fact, uh, only uh, he and a, a couple other people in the church, other than the elders, um, didn't use alcohol. In fact, it was just he and his wife there. Um, there was one time when General Alice, formerly a member of our church, uh, he attended there and he didn't use it either. But other than that, people used alcohol. Uh, you go to a Bible study and they're drinking wine. Um, we went to a 4th of July gathering and people, man, the beer was flowing. And he said, you know, Dad, it's kind of funny because these Christians who advocate that it's okay to have a beer or to have a wine, he says, I've yet, I've yet to meet any of my friends who at some point has not had too much. That's what always happens. And, of course, the first time you've had a glass of wine, you've had too much because you got a high from it. Oh, you say, it takes me four or five now before I get that same feeling. Oh, so are you telling me uh, that God wants you to sin and build up a resistance to it where you don't get that? Well, look, a, a drunk has to drink straight vodka sometimes to get the straight feeling. Uh, does that mean that uh, it was okay for him to have a four or five beers? No, of course not. Um, so, look, we're living in hard times, and my heart goes out to people who are unemployed. But I don't know what's going to happen in this nation if we're going to have a depression or just what's going to happen. Uh, but I will say this. I think the body of Christ will be the best off. You know, if we have to have three and four people living in our homes and that's the kind of decisions we make as Christians, we'll do it. Uh, if we have to pull our food together, we'll do it. If we have to go out and fish together, we'll do it. God, God's not going to forsake the righteous. Our lifestyle may not be on the same level that we've always known if we go into a depression. But God's going to take care of us. And I, I tell people sometimes, look, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen, you starve to death and you go to heaven. It's not all that bad an option. So anyway, let's go to our next question. All right. Kathy from Bluffton would like to know, what is considered Christ's first coming? Is it his birth or his triumphant entry on the donkey into Jerusalem where they throw all the palms down? And after his second coming, during the rapture, is his final return considered a third coming or part of a second coming? Well, that's a good question. Um, Really, when we speak of the first coming of Christ, we we don't— we don't separate the whole process that God used to bring that about. Obviously, there was an incarnation that was predicted of the first coming of Messiah. Uh, Isaiah the prophet uh, spoke specifically that when Messiah comes, he's going to take on human form. And so God says in Isaiah chapter 9, for instance, uh, let me just turn there. He says, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given. And then he says, um, and his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So a baby is going to be born, and the baby's name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And, of course, he had already predicted in Isaiah 7 how that birth would take place. Behold, uh, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, that is, God with us. For, so a virgin, and some liberal theologians would say, well, a young maiden. Well, certainly the, the Hebrew word can mean a young maiden, but when this verse is quoted in the New Testament, just to remove any ambiguity, 
the Spirit of God there chooses to use a Greek word that can only mean a virgin. And of course, in Isaiah's day, young maidens were virgins, maybe unlike our day. But a young virgin, a young maiden who's a virgin is going to bear a child, and the baby's name is going to be called Emmanuel. So we take the incarnation, the life of Jesus on the earth, his triumphal entry, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven. That's, that's all part of the first coming and what took place the first time he came to planet Earth. Uh, the second coming, um, you know, you can sometimes group that together in a set of events, that are unfolding, or you can separate them uh, depending on semantical uh, definitions. Uh, The rapture is the catching up of the church. Uh, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. So when Jesus comes for the catching up of the church, we meet the Lord not on the earth, but in the air. So we usually refer to that as the rapture. It is true that the word rapture is not technically found in the Bible, but neither is the word trinity. Uh, You could call it the catching up. Uh, There's coming a catching up day when all the true believers who are on the earth will be caught up. Now, in a fourth century translation of the Bible, They took the Greek New Testament and translated it into Latin, which was the the language of the scholars of that day. And the word that is translated caught up is the Latin word rapto. And so we get our English word rapture. I don't care if you call it rapture or catching up, but to say that there's no such thing because they took the Greek word harpazo and translated it with rapto that comes into English as rapture, said that there's no such thing as ridiculous. Now, very often, though, the second coming is referred to Jesus' return to the earth. And so the Bible speaks not just of the catching up of the church, but that Jesus is literally, actually going again to come to earth. And that typically is referred to as the second coming. And so, for instance, in um, Zechariah 14, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. That, that's interesting. The Bible speaks at some point in the future as, a, as having a divided Jerusalem. Now, whether this war happens during the tribulation period or whether this battle happens before the rapture, we're not told, but we are told something that comes seemingly quickly after this divided Jerusalem takes place. And and I find it interesting that, you know, the president and the United Nations have been talking about a divided Jerusalem. Uh, the Bible predicts that's going to happen. Then it says in the next verse of Zechariah 14, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. So Jesus is first coming to meet his people in the air. 
But then he is coming to the earth, and usually that coming to the earth where he literally stands on the Mount of Olives, we refer to as the second coming of Messiah. Um, so I hope that helps and maybe clears it up for you a little bit. Let's go to our next question. 525-1859. We're just about out of time, but let's see if we can get a couple more dictated questions in. All right. Eric from Beaufort would like to know, is it wrong while praying to God to also pray directly to Jesus Christ for thanks for dying for us and to the Holy Spirit for thanks for residing in us? Or should all those prayers be directed towards God alone since he is all three anyways? For instance, Thank you, God, for giving your son to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself on the cross because of your unexplicable love for us to wash away our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for residing in me and helping direct my, me to a life full of worship to the Father Almighty. Wrong, or is that all right? Well, again, remember in the Bible's uh, revelation given to us about the doctrine of the Trinity— while the members of the Godhead are distinct, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, they are inseparable. So really, even when you pray to the Lord Jesus, you're praying to the Father or to the Spirit. If you were to make a request to the Spirit, you're praying to the Father and to the Son. They are inseparable. Now, I would say the general pattern in prayer is you pray our Father who's in heaven and you pray in Jesus' name. That's the general pattern. And I think, by the way, it's best when you address God, not just to call him Lord. A lot of, um, you know, unsaved people use the term Lord or Master. But there's, if that's the only term you ever use, oh, Lord, um, stop and pause. If you're born again, the Spirit of God within your heart cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy. It's a very tender term. Refer to him as Father. I'm not saying it's wrong to call him Lord, but you should call him Father as well. Is it wrong to pray directly to Jesus? Jesus said, whatever you ask me, I will ask of the Father. Um, you f- see Stephen, for instance, the, the day in which uh, he's doing a marvelous sermon proving that Jesus is the Christ, and he reviews the whole of the Old Testament in Acts 7. And what's their, what's their response? Well, they get mad at him, and Stephen says, you're just like your fathers. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Men can resist the Spirit of God. Those folks did, and so they stoned him. What was his prayer? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who is he praying to? Directly to the Son. So there's nothing necessarily wrong making a prayer directly to the Father, or to the Son, or to the Spirit. But I would say as a general rule, you pray to the Father through the cross because it's through Jesus that you have access to the Father. And you pray in the Spirit. Paul talks about in both Colossians 4 and Ephesians 4, praying in the Spirit, not by or Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6. Um, because it's in the Spirit as I'm walking with God. Getting right back to where we started today. No iniquity in my heart, clean heart, that I am able to pray effectively. We're out of time today. Thanks for joining us for the Bible line. Hope you have a great day. God bless you. 